Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. All right, good morning. Um, Today, we are going to take a look at the crucifixion. So I don't think I need to say this, but I will say this. It's a heavy subject, is it not? Jesus Christ, our Lord, murdered on a cross. And so um, next week, Wade Thomas will be up here preaching on the resurrection, and we can rejoice because we know how this ends. We know that Jesus conquers death and that Jesus Christ is alive. We can say Jesus Christ is alive. But imagine if you were at that time 2,000 years ago, you know, and, and you heard this amazing news, Jesus Christ is alive. But you didn't know that of, of all the events that had happened a few days before, your reaction would just kind of be like, well, yeah, he's that guy, you know, I, I heard about him. He's, he's a preacher of, of wondrous preaching, of, of miracles and all that stuff. Yeah, of course he's alive. But what makes this amazing, what makes that amazing news is that Jesus Christ died in the first place. And so we have to give our due diligence to this. We can't overlook it. And then next week when Wade comes up, yeah, we can celebrate. Jesus Christ is alive. Um, And we can celebrate this. That's why we call it Good Friday, right? I want to read a few verses and then a passage from a book just to kind of get our minds prepared. And then I'll read the passage and we'll dive on into this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember these verses, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 12.1 and 2, mostly focusing on verse 2, but want to read one, it sets up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. File that away. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Another, not a passage of scripture, but something from a book. He who hung the earth in its place hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been slain by an Israelitish hand. Oh, strange murder, strange crime. The master has been treated in unseemly fashion. His body naked and not even deemed worthy of a covering that it might not be seen. Therefore, the lights of heaven turned away and the day darkened that it might hide him who was stripped upon the cross. Father, you sent your son, Jesus, to die a horrible, gruesome death to be made sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, that we, you sent an innocent, an innocent man to die in our place. 
What should the, the, the posture of our heart be other than, other than gratitude for this amazing thing that you've done? Be with us today. Help us, um, help us have a proper perspective of, of who you are, of the immensity of what you've done. Jesus, thank you for your love and for coming and dying for our sins. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. I could not, I, I, I should restrain myself a little bit. I could use superlatives. I could use so many superlatives right now. One thing I want to say, the biggest injustice in the history of the world, can I say that? Jesus Christ, an innocent man dying on the cross for our sins, God himself dying on the cross. But let's read, I'm going to read Luke 23, verses 26 through 56. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say that the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let me pause here and say one thing real quick. This is referring to the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. I am not going to cover this passage at any other point throughout this sermon. Uh, Michael talked about that several weeks ago when he talked about the... Um, talked about the destruction of the temple. So, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming, up, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. 
The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared the spices and oint- prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Um, one other thing about this passage, I'm also not going to go in depth about the last section here, verses 50 to 56, other than to say right now, Jesus did die, he was buried. There are people who, who hate the truth, who want to claim, make claims that, no, Jesus didn't die. He, he pretended to be dead or he tricked people into thinking he was dead. No, let's trust the word of God and not man. Jesus died and he was buried. Um, I'm not much of a title guy, but I did have a title for this sermon and I want to share it with you now. It's the, the threefold suffering of Christ on the cross and the miracle of new life at Golgotha. The threefold suffering of Christ on the cross. I, what do I mean by that? Essentially this, that I, I've singled out three ways in particular that Jesus suffered when he was on the cross. Three ways, and I want to cover those in increasing order of the level of suffering, starting with the least amount of suffering, which is still very significant. And that, to start out, would be the curses, the mocking, the spectacle the circus that has been created with Jesus as the main attraction. That's number one. Number two is the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. And then number three, which I believe is by far the worst, is the curse of God and the breaking of fellowship with God with whom he had eternal fellowship from eternity past. Perfect, perfect fellowship. And so to start out, with this first, the spectacle, the, the comedy, the circus, um, I want to ask a question. It's simply this, if I can get to it in my notes here. Um, why crucifixion? What is the purpose of crucifixion? Why did the Roman leaders, not the Roman, the Jewish leaders push so hard for Jesus Christ to be, pers- to be crucified? Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. There's a primary motivation for them. They wanted Jesus to be a curse. They wanted him hanging on the cross. They wanted him to be a curse. They wanted him to be cursed by God. And um, they were right. He was cursed by God. But, man, they couldn't have been any more wrong. They were just simply pawns used by God for his purposes. That is all. But then also, the reason why they wanted him crucified, among other many ways, many brutal ways he could have died, is for this scene, this mockery. It's a shameful thing to be exposed like this. Here's some things you can't do when you're exposed like this. You can't do this. You're hanging there. You can't do this. You are exposed, in Jesus' case, with a loincloth, almost naked in front of everyone. Everyone is mocking him. They're deriding him. It is a big show. They want to do everything they can to stir up this strife towards Jesus. That is why crucifixion over other brutal forms of death. And so Jesus was crucified. How long was he on the cross before he died? About six hours. That's my assumption, Mark says he was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., 
and that he breathed his last, gave up his spirit at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And we have in this six-hour stretch, the six-hour span, about two periods of time, a first section of three hours, which is covered in chapter Luke 23, verses 32 through 43, and that's the grand spectacle, the, the mocking, the, the curses, that's, that's all of that with a sweet moment of repentance at the end of it. And then the second, the last three hours is covered in Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. And that is where we see that there's darkness over the whole land, the cur curtain of the temple is torn in two, and where we see some of these people realizing, oh, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't have done that. So, with that in mind, focusing first on these first three hours, there are four groups of people here at the scene of the cross. We have the soldiers who were, and I want to examine even a little bit before Jesus is crucified, we have the soldiers who were unbelievably cruel to Jesus. We have the Jewish leaders, the main instigators here. We have the people, the general people, and then we have the two thieves. Starting out with the soldiers, starting out just focusing on, on just how cruel they were to him. Matthew 27, 26, they scourged Jesus. They had a whip fashioned with bones and with pieces of metal, fragments of bone, fragments of metal. They whipped him. They beat him senseless. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, the whole battalion, this is where they, they put the crown of thorns on his head. But these words sticked out to me, stuck out to me. The whole battalion was there. I don't know about you, when I picture that, the, the, the part where they put the crown of thorns in his head, I picture something like four people, four soldiers. But it says in Matthew and Mark, the whole battalion was there. So how big is a battalion? Well, a battalion is a tenth of a Roman legion. A Roman legion consists of about 6,000 men. The whole battalion was there, 600 men in the praetorium. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. They kneeled before him and mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took that reed from his hand and they struck him in the head the head that had the crown of thorns, digging the thorns deeper in his head. Unbelievably cruel. They, they crucified Jesus. They cast lots to divide his garments. We'll get to that later. Um, chapter 23, Luke 23, verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's three references to sour wine in the entire crucifixion in all of the gospels, this is the second time. The first time when they were about to crucify him, they offered him sour wine as a means of, uh, of dulling him so that he wouldn't resist being crucified. But he refused it and he didn't resist. This is the second time. Are they being kind to Jesus? I mean, the entire scene is, is mockery and, and, you know, scorning. No, they're, they're, they're using this wine, offering it to him as a means of mocking him. You are the king, here's your wine. The third time is about, about the time before Jesus yields his spirit. He says, I thirst. And they get a sponge. They put it in sour wine. They put it on a stick. 
And at first they're about to hand it to him. Somebody says, wait, he's calling on Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. But then later on they do give it to him. And if you want to know what I think they're doing there, ask me later. That's not something that I want to talk about up front here. It's just too crude. Luke 23, verse 38. There's also an inscription over him that they wrote. This is the king of the Jews. They did that to mock Jesus. This is the first writing, the first recorded writing of Jesus. And of course, they used it for one purpose and God meant it for something entirely different. So those are the soldiers, the the cruel, wicked soldiers. Next, we have the leaders. Luke 23, verse 35. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Matthew and Mark also give similar descriptions, but Mark adds something, adds adds something that I think is pretty key. We'll get to that after I read this John MacArthur quote. So John MacArthur says this, you know, the rulers scoffed at him. He says, they're sneering at him. A very strong word used only here and one other time in the Gospel of Luke and nowhere else in the New Testament. It is a compound word. The word in the Greek for nose is muktir. This word is ekmuktriz. It means to push up your nose at him. It is a compound word that you do so in an extreme way. Intense derision and scorn. These leaders hated Jesus. And if you remember what Michael said, I think it was last week, what was the cause of their hatred? It was their envy. They envied him so much. Their envy drove him to this intense derision and scorn. And then John MacArthur finishes, they blaspheme him. So here's what Mark says, the thing that Mark adds when it says the rulers scoffed at him. It says, they mocked him to one another. Notice, they don't speak to Jesus. They've tried that once or multiple times. They're not speaking to Jesus. They're not messing around with that anymore. They're just speaking to each other, trying to rile each other up. Their intention is to stir up the crowd, and I I wouldn't be surprised if they went home that day thinking, you know, we succeeded. We did it. So that's, that's the leaders, the people. Luke says, and the people stood by watching. But we see more detailed accounts in other gospels. Matthew 27, 39 through 40, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I don't know what what it is about one of these words in particular. There's something from this part that has always just kind of like, just been really like, "Mm." and that's, it's not the the cursing, it's not the mocking, it's, it's, it's the wagging of heads. The, this guy, you know, he thought he was going to be something. He thought he was a king. I was actually tempted to believe that this guy was going to be a king. Look at him now. That just, I'm thankful Jesus was there, not any of us. And then we have the thieves. Matthew 24, 27, 44 says, and the robbers who crucified him also reviled him in the same way. Mark 15, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
But Luke gives a much different account. So, uh oh, is this, is this an error in the Bible? I actually, I remember my sophomore year of college, a friend of mine was taking a, a Bible class, studying the Bible as histori- historical work, not studying it as the word of God, and, and the professor in that class said, hey, here's a contradiction. Matthew and Mark say that two of the thieves reviled Jesus, and Luke says that only one of them did. This is an, obviously not the word of God because there's an error. And so, all right, is this an error in the Bible? Absolutely not. Here's the error that the professor was making. The professor was looking at this as a single point in time, not six hours. And so, so here's what happened with this thief at the cross. And some of you can relate to this. Some of you know the exact day, the minute, the hour that you were saved, that God broke through your heart of stone and created a heart of flesh. You remember that. You remember who you were before and who you were after. That's what happened with the thief on the cross. He came in a sinner who was worthy of death, worthy of going to hell. And he repented. God, during that six-hour span, broke through his hard heart, his heart of stone, and gave him new life. Because God will do what he does. He will save whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, wherever he wants. And at this point, God decided to save this thief. And I wanna tell you this, and I am not exaggerating, I have never seen a faith like this thief. And I will never see faith like that again. This thie- the thief on the cross is a hero of mine. And I want to try to convince you of this. All right, there's this book. This is my favorite book, aside from the Bible. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Um, it's, it's a thick book, but it's, a, it's an easy read. It's several essays just talking about different things. You can take each chapter as its own individual thing. And in this book, J.C. Ryle has a chapter titled, Christ's greatest trophy. Who is Christ's greatest trophy? It's the thief. The thief, the penitent thief, is Christ's greatest trophy. Because look at his faith. All right, a few things. We, there's so much to glean from so few verses. Number one, God calls him Lord. Or sorry, the thief calls him Lord, calls Jesus Lord. He, did, he does so by declaring his belief that Jesus would have a kingdom. If he has a kingdom, he is king, he is Lord. At what an odd time when, when God is dying on the cross. This is when the thief believes. He prays to Jesus. The thief declares Jesus' innocence. He is bold enough to declare that Jesus is innocent. There are other people who wonder. Pontius Pilate wondered. The thief declared This man is innocent. This thief rightly knew of himself as a sinner worthy of death. He understood his place before a holy God. This thief lovingly rebuked the blasphemy of the other thief. Listen to these words. Listen to the tenderness. Do you not fear God? For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. 
but this man is innocent. And number six, he asked Jesus to save him. He asked Jesus, who is weak and at the point of death, will you save me? Now, he says, remember me. That is a weak request, but it's, it's the weak request of a man who knows he's not worthy. Jesus, because he is who he is, sees fit to save this man at this time with that weak request, which gives me a lot of strength. But then, if that's not convincing enough, was there ever a more difficult time to believe in Jesus than this time ever in the history of the world? I would say there was not. God is on the cross dying. There's a multitude around him hurling curses at him. And where are his disciples? Now John makes an appearance. The rest of them have fled. These men who saw Jesus feed 5,000, feed 4,000, walk on water, raise people from the dead, calm the winds in the seas. They're gone. This thief who saw none of that at this almost impossible time, this thief believes at this time. We've got to move on. This, I'm telling you, he's my hero. If I had a handful of people that I could name from the Bible, he would be on that list. Jesus would be number one, of course. And so this mocking is happening, the, the scene, the circus, and then we see from Jesus something entirely different. At the same time that all of this is happening, Jesus says three things during these first three hours, and they're all filled with grace. We have these records, the, the, the records that we have. Um, verse, chapter 23, verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He doesn't, he, he's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about his followers. Luke 23, 34, could you pray this prayer surrounded by your enemies? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Chapter 23, verse 43, what he says to the thief, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. What a model for us as we, as we face difficulties in our lives, as we face enmity. He is the founder, the perfecter of our faith. And he demonstrates so, so wonderfully here. But of all the sufferings of Jesus, the curses of the soldiers, the leaders, the people, the thieves... I think, in my opinion, this was actually the most tolerant part of Jesus being on the cross. So moving on to the second greatest suffering, the physical pain of being nailed to the cross. And I'm sorry, I, I want to give some attention to this, not to be gory, but to illustrate that this was Jesus' second greatest form of suffering and that his greatest form was far greater a couple quotes from this book, Crucifixion, Martin Hengel. Crux, crucifixion, is put at the head of the three summa supplica. It is followed in descending order by crematio, burning, and decolatio, decapitation. It was viewed as the most barbaric and severe form of punishment in Roman times. 
Next quote. For the men of the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, and Jews, the cross was not just a matter of indifference, not just any kind of death. It was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word. Now, I don't want to assume anything. I'm thinking most of you know this, but just in case, do you know how a crucified man actually dies, at least most of the time? It's asphyxiation. They suffocate. And so when a man is crucified, there are many records of crucifixion in the ancient world, thousands upon thousands. The nail doesn't go through the hand. If it went through the hand, because just, have you ever thought about, I mean, downstairs I see some of the teenagers like jumping up and hanging on the cross beams. How much pressure is on the thing that you're, you're hanging from on, on your hands? Um, so they don't, they don't put the nail in the hand. Because if they did, gravity would take its effect and the nail would just eventually tear through the skin and then your hands are, you fall off. I mean, that, what would happen, I would, I would hope in that case that the nails of the feet, as they're falling down, those would come out too, but I don't know. So the nail goes in the wrist between these two bones so that you can be held up between the bones in your wrist. And <clears throat> at first, at first, when it comes to being able to breathe, it's, I hate to use this, it's okay. It's okay. But then, as your body weakens, and as gravity takes its place, you, you just, you start to sag. And my arms aren't raising, but my, my body's lowering. And you sag to a point where you can't breathe anymore. And so that's when it goes from incredibly painful to excruciating, which is derived from the word crucifixion. Because in order to pull yourself up, you need to put your weight in, in the parts of your body that have nails in them. And I don't know about you, I, mean, I, I could probably hold my breath for a minute right now, but have you ever tried to hold your breath when you're in intense pain? It's really hard. What you got to do, you got to just... And so they'd have to physically hurt themselves to pull themselves up in order to breathe and then go right back down and do that until they didn't have any strength anymore. Um, have you ever been in a position where you want to breathe and you can't? Uh, I was a swimmer for four years when I was a kid. My dad wanted me to swim. I wanted to play basketball, but he won. Um, and an interesting thing happened. I, 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 was, I was a good swimmer, but the thing that I really remember from that time is that I was more, because I, I spent so much time underwater, I was more afraid of, I, I developed this fear of, of suffocating. I was more afraid of that being the way that I die than anything else. And so I remember times when I would be underwater just needing to breathe, wanting to breathe, and thinking I would, I would suffer anything right now for just a gasp of air. And I'm saying that because if I were in that position, I, I think I would be willing to suffer any amount of pain for another gasp of air until I literally could not do it anymore. And that's how a man on the cross would die. But... Having a man scourged before crucifying him 
was actually a more humane way of killing him. Beating a man within an inch of his life and then putting him on the cross was a more humane way of killing him. Jesus lasted six hours with a great deal of blood loss, just incredibly weak, before he yielded his spirit. Many men, it would take, it would take days. And again, this is Jesus' second greatest suffering. So what's the greatest? I already said it, but... Matthew 27, 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, leba sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fellowship with God is broken. This fellowship, this perfect fellowship from eternity past to this day is broken. We cannot even come close to conceiving of such a thing. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin, our sins, the sins from our past, the sins from our present. There are sins that you will commit that have been transferred to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, receiving those sins, endured the wrath of a holy God who hates sin. Praise God. It's not easy to say that, but that should be our first reaction. Praise God, because we have been made righteous. And remember, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That is what he expects of us is to respond with rejoicing. That's why, he call, that's why we call it Good Friday. Because we rejoice that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But can we step into this a little bit, just a little bit, to come closer to understanding just the, the horror of this moment. I mean, imagine the person who loves you more than anyone else. I don't know who that would be. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent. Someone who loves you. You know they love you more than anyone else. And imagine that love being turned into just pure hatred and rage. I remember three years ago at the men's retreat, Jake Reichwein asked me a kind of question that Jake Reichwein would ask. It was, Alex, can you, uh, what are your kids like? And so this was a few days before Sophie was born. Jemima was obviously not born yet, but I went through Esther, Hudson, Zion, and Jordan, and I just spent some time talking about their strengths, their weaknesses, but mostly just talking about the things that I love about them. And, and I remember what I said about Hudson. And what I said about Hudson is true about all the kids, but I, just, I remember what I said about Hudson at that time. I, I said to Jake, I, would, I want a lifetime with Hudson. I want just, I want 80 years. Give me, give me a lifetime with Hudson. Maybe, you know, heaven's eternity. Maybe we'll get that. Me, Hudson, in the presence of God, exploring the new creation and just delighting in each other. And I, and I told Jake further that I've imagined at times, like, what if the whole world disappeared and it was just me and Hudson now, at first, it would be incredibly difficult. 
I think he would get over it faster than I would. I'd miss a lot of people in this room. I'd miss the other kids. I'd miss Sarah a great deal. But if there was ever a day that I could just pick myself up in this imaginary scenario, I could picture us exploring the world, climbing mountains, swimming in rivers, sleeping under the stars, and never getting tired of it. Delighting in him as my son, him delighting in me as his father. Now what if, in the, under that imaginary scenario, I got up one day and I looked at Hudson, filled with rage, and I said, I hate you. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But as I've thought about that, that is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what Jesus endured as he lost that fellowship with God and as he became sin. But that's not all that's happening here. As Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know Jesus is referencing a passage from the Old Testament? What passage? Psalm 22. Do me a favor. After you get home, maybe before bed, open your Bible, read Psalm 22. If you didn't know that that's what Jesus was referencing, open your Bible, read Psalm 22, and what you will see is that Jesus is screaming out at you in this psalm. I don't have time to go over every verse, but I do want to pull out a few highlights, starting in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Does that sound familiar? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does any of that sound familiar? We see that the prophetic nature of this psalm, we see that fulfilled in the cross. And then, jumping to verse 27, we see something that was started to be fulfilled on that day. And God did not waste any time. And it is still being fulfilled to this day. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. In his cry as he breathes out his last breath, this is where Psalm 22 verses 27 and 28, begins their fulfillment. And we see that so much in this passage, we see it in the rest of the New Testament, we see it today. Verses, what verses was that? The, the second three hours, 44 through 49. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. We now have access to the Holy of Holies. Curtain of the, the curtain of the temple, 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. From what I read, you could put horses on either side pulling with all their might 
and they wouldn't be able to tear it. And yet God, in an instant, tore the curtain of the temple in two. Uh, We saw already the thief on the cross and his repentance, his faith. We saw, do you remember, remember Jesus' prayer? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see God immediately, graciously answering that prayer. You know, darkness came over the earth. It was in order to bring about repentance. It was in order to communicate this thing that you have done. I am not pleased. And how do the people react to that? Well, we have the centurion. In Luke, he says, this, this is, certainly this man was innocent. In Matthew, he says, truly this was the son of God. He said both. He repented. We have the next verse in Luke. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Many of them knew that they had sinned terribly. And this sets the stage, this set the stage for the coming of the Holy Spirit several weeks later, for the apostles, for all who were in that room who received the Holy Spirit to go out and to preach the gospel to the nations. We have in in Acts chapter 2, we have this first sermon recorded of Peter's where he preaches the sermon to many people who were there at the cross. And he ends that sermon, verse 36, Acts chapter 2, let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they responded, they responded you know, they were pierced in their hearts. They responded, brothers, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, each one of you. So God graciously answered Jesus' prayer, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. People who were mocking, cursing, blaspheming, some of them, they had opportunities to repent. And I want to draw from this, God is at work. He got to work immediately the moment that Jesus on the cross, with his arms stretched out, said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he breathed his last God has been at work building his church, and he is at work today with you, with myself, Lord willing. Come in with gratitude as you are, as I know you are, and bring glory to the name of God. I'm not much of an application guy for those of you who have heard several of my sermons. There's just the first thing that I, I do want to say, though, is I'm speaking to myself. How are you not grateful? How do you go through your days depressed, angry, bitter when that happens? Be thankful. Let this truth fill your heart with gratitude. But then I want to finish with one of the verses I started with, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, let this be true of every man and woman in this room, of every child in this room, 
who grows up, that they would grow up to, to know, love, and obey you. Let us know, love, and obey you with gratitude. Let us be a part of, of your work to, to bring glory to your name in Cincinnati, at the University of Cincinnati, in Uptown, in our neighborhoods. Let us do so with gratitude. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing something that we could never repay in sending your son to die for our sins. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.